This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hi, and welcome to our Smarter Lawcast on business restructuring and being risk ready. In this episode, we're discussing the important considerations you need to think about when buying a distressed business. My name is Scott Butler, and I'm a partner in Hall and Wilcox's dispute resolution practice, specialising in restructuring and insolvency. Today, I'm joined by Ed Payton, an M&A partner, and David Cavanese, a partner in our employment and workplace relations group. Ed, David, and I are members of Hall and Wilcox's restructuring and turnaround team which mainly focuses on assisting underperforming businesses to restructure their business affairs so that they can survive and thrive. But we also assist clients to take advantage of opportunities that present themselves when other businesses are in financial difficulty. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Scott. Morning, Scott. Morning, David. Ed and David, we've all been involved in assisting clients to acquire businesses that are in financial distress, whether that's outside or inside a formal insolvency process, such as a voluntary administration. And when such businesses are put up for sale, there are generally really tight timeframes for the sale process, given the financial pressures the business is facing. And so to take advantage of such buying opportunities, clients need to be prepared for and understand the different dynamics which arise from when you're buying, um, let's say, you know, comparing that to buying a high-performing business. Ed, I might ask you this question first. What are are some of the things that clients need to consider to be ready and able to buy a distressed business at such short notice? Yeah, thanks, Scott. Uh, It's a, um, yeah, there are a few things. Um, I think the main thing, you know, really is just sort of being aware, you know, of the um, industry you're in, you know, having situational awareness so you, you need to know you know who are the sort of target businesses in your industry or you know or sector uh, who's of interest to you how they're traveling um, and often you know you do know that um, within your within your industry uh, and uh, you know you need to be ready you know if they if they do come on the market uh, another thing which is really important um, so that you're ready, you know, to buy a distressed business at short notice, you know, is resources. So there's a question about, you know, do you have a good relationship with your bank? Um, you know, do you have other sources of funding that you could tap into quickly? Um, you know, would you be ready to move quickly if an opportunity presented itself? Um, and the third thing, you know, which I think is really important is, is people. So, you know, do you actually have the resources in your management team to, keep the business running, you know, and to do a due diligence, which might be a very rapid and detailed, you know, sort of process. And that can be quite a strain on a business, which people don't anticipate. Um, The other thing might be, you know, whether you've got established relationships with your advisors, you you certainly want to have relationships in place so you can just pick up the phone and um, and they'll swing into action for you. Yeah, they're all good points. And as I mentioned before, the the sell process for distressed business, they're usually truncated that you know they're really quick because the business is usually trading at a loss and so a quick sale is often critical and what so that sort of you know truncated quick sale process what what issues does that generally present well i mean in, in a broad sense you know it, it just changes um you know it changes everything so it change, changes the amount of um time you have the amount of due diligence you're able to do it, it changes the way you um you know might structure your offer and the confidence you'll have that you've 
you know, you're making the right, you know, the right offer. Um, so, uh, you know, I think the, um, you know, the key thing, you know, in terms of the, uh, you know, the due diligence is, is sort of focusing on, um, you know, the key issues, material issues. We talk about red flag issues. You know, what what are the, what are the big sort of walk away type issues that you need to identify in, in, in due diligence? Uh, and, you know, do you know what they are and how you're going to find them and how you're going to um, focus on them? And is the material available, you know, to you, you know, in, in a data room, uh, you know, to, to do that? Uh, and then I think the sort of second thing is um, in relation to, you know, to the offer, you may be able to get uh, comfortable on a certain amount of due diligence, and that could be financial, legal, uh, and and other, but you may um, you may just also have to price the risk. You may not be able to bottom out all the issues, or get all the documents you need, or have time to go through it all sort of thoroughly. So you know those are a couple of the the challenges. I, I might sort of run through a couple of kind of high risk issues or or sort of red flags that we see, Scott. So you know, one of the key uh, key issues, which people are often familiar with in any deal, you know, is tax risk. Now, this is sort of less of an issue in sort of fast moving, you know, distressed deals because they tend to be asset acquisitions or business and asset acquisitions, you know, if there's goodwill. Um, here, you know, if we're not buying the structure, we're less worried about, you know, the tax risk, the tax history and, and tax liabilities, but there might still be indirect tax that's relevant, you know, particularly some GST and stamp duty. And, you know, there, there can be um, hidden traps with stamp duty. Um, you know, stamp duty is actually quite, um, you know, quite complex and varies obviously from state to state. And there are some strange legacy stamp duty type issues. And uh, and there are some also some more, um, you know, um, recent uh, additions even in, in property and construction in the last couple of years. Um, the, the next sort of issue I want to mention was sort of really around that traditional area of claims, disputes and litigation. So everybody knows, you know, you, if you're doing an acquisition, you know, you do litigation searches. Now, if you're not acquiring a, um, a company, you know, you're not taking on those liabilities necessary, but if a business does have a track record of having lots of, you know, claims or disputes or litigation, then that may um, lead to uh, you forming a view about how that's been run and whether it's been sort of, you know, well run. The other thing you can have, you know, a legacy issues with claims that um, say relate to employees that haven't resulted, you know, in in uh, in litigation. And David will talk more about employees later. Uh, the third uh, sort of issue is just a quick one, really around sort of cyber and ESG. So um, ESG is sort of an acronym that everybody is sort of using at the moment, and for good reason. You know, environmental issues, social issues, and governance issues are all you know, really important in in due diligence. Uh, and there's an increasing focus on uh, ESG in in due diligence, and that can be very relevant to um, distressed deals and fast moving deals as well. You know, cyber risk and information sort of security, data security, privacy. You know, systems. You know, issues around security. Um, a, a key, you know, we've seen so many high-profile examples, you know, of um, of where 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 good companies, you know, haven't been able to get that right yet. So um, um, that's really that's really important. Yeah. Ed, the um, I guess what I, the the thing that we see, um, you know, when we're on these deals is that the contract, the the traditional sort of clauses you'd have in a in a contract, 
you really have to be um, thinking about, you know, how how is your contract going to be a bit different um, when you're dealing with a, you know, buying a distressed business and what are, what are the key sort of things, you know, from, from a contractual perspective that you'd expect in, this, in these situations? Yeah, that's no, a great, great question, Scott. I think it's interesting. I look at this from two different perspectives. I, I think, you know, you look at it from the, um, the seller perspective, and then you also sort of look at it in terms of the, you know, sort of the buyer's position in a in a distressed deal. Um, you know, I think from the seller's position, if the seller is a um, uh, has been formally appointed, so it's an administrator or a liquidator, um, or you know, I mean, uh, in other circumstances, this happens sort of in the private equity context as well. But but particularly here, where we're talking about sort of distress, and let, let's say it's an administrator, and an administrator, you know doesn't know the history of the business they don't want you know personal liability for um what they you know sort of put into the contract what they commit to in, in the contract they'll want limitations of their uh liabilities same with liquidator and uh so they'll be they'll give you very limited you know sort of warranties uh and you won't get indemnities in, in a traditional sort of m a situation um, you'd want an extensive you know set of warranties and indemnities from a seller and probably a warrantor so an individual behind sitting behind the seller uh, to um, you know back up those you know those warranties and the warranties protect you if there are gaps in your due diligence um, in in a in a fast moving deal you don't have that same uh, protection you probably don't have access to you know warranty and indemnity insurance because the deals you know it's, it's all moving too fast um, even though there are some interesting products out there, um, and uh, you need to um, be conscious that um, there will be more risk in that contract, you know, than in a normal situation where you have a more, um, you know, generous um, and purchase a sort of favourable or even balanced, you know, sort of contract. They, these contracts will be quite seller favourable, and therefore you need to you need to price the risk. Yeah, and I was about to say. Um, uh, Really, it's about pricing risk. So I totally agree with you. Mm. David, um, just uh, moving on to you, one of the big issues in acquiring a business is taking on all the employees. And, you know, I and everybody else only needs to read the news to see that even the most diligent employers are subject um, to underpayment claims at the moment. And it just shows me that employment law is complex and difficult and it's difficult to get right, even even for the most diligent and, and large corporations. So when you are looking to acquire a business with employees, you know, what are what are the three key questions that businesses should be asking themselves? Thanks, Scott. Yeah, the employment law aspects of, of these types of transactions is really important. And in my experience, it's something that's thought of second. Uh, you know, there's an opportunity um, or a need to move on a business if that's necessary. Um, and these are what's front of mind in, in each party's um, approach to these sorts of transactions, um, the opportunity. Then there's, well, what's the deal going to look like? And, and all of the things that Ed mentioned, uh, you know, pricing risk, prices usually very front of mind. And then the employment law aspects come in later and and that's usually where I get involved in these types of transactions. And often I see that there are things that the parties simply haven't turned their mind to, which really can be material to the transaction. Mm, and, yep. you know, they're very important. And 
the three, I think, biggest questions that, you know, parties on either side of these types of transactions should really be asking is, well, what is it that we're buying or selling? You really want to have a very clear idea about what the transaction is all about. Is it um, about novating service contracts? Is it about acquiring assets? Do you need to acquire people with special skills or workforce capacity in an industry? Are you simply trying to take out a competitor? You know, what is it that you're trying to achieve through the transaction? Because that's really going to drive the strategy from an employment law perspective. And just to give an example, you know, if you're, um, I do you want to retain the um, existing workforce of the, the business that you're acquiring um, or not? Um, and, and if not, for example, what are the redundancy payment consequences? You know, if it's a large, long-standing workforce, that could run to the millions of dollars. And is that going to be material to the transaction going through? Um, similarly, is there insurance that covers severance payments? You really want to know that at an early stage. It's going to be material to the deal. So, you know, what actually is it that the transaction is all about? Um, another question that I think um, all parties should ask themselves is where are they going to get the data from? You know, realistically, how sophisticated are these businesses? Um, do they have internal resources to produce reports on employee liabilities, um, claims and so forth, um, employee data, contact details, industrial arrangements, contracts of employment, all these things that really need to be considered to get the transaction across the line. Um, how are you going to get it? Where's it stored? Is it offshore? Are there third parties? Um, is it going to be reliable? You know, how much due, due diligence are you going to need to do about the data? David, what, what, if, what if you just can't, you know, you can't get that data because, because it's, this business is, there's probably a reason it's in distress. It's probably not managed that well. It's, it's um, records may not be that great. Um, and, um, you know, what, what if there's just gaps? Scott, there's, there's always going to be gaps, particularly when there's significant time pressures. You know, these aren't ordinary circumstances where you do a full due diligence, you know, and, and, and you and Ed have spoken about that. Um, so how do you, you know, price that risk? Maybe it comes into the purchase price. Um, maybe it's, it's simply a risk that you're prepared to take. And getting in experienced advisors is really important on that score as well. People who've seen these sorts of transactions and have a better idea of the, um, you know, the known unknowns. How many red flags are here? How serious are they? What is the level of risk? Are you still prepared to go through with the transaction without knowing um, for example, um, I worked on a transaction recently where there are some real questions about the legal status of some industrial instruments that applied to the workforce. And so there was a question mark about how these industrial instruments would transfer over to NUCO, um, which could have a material impact on labour costs. And um, really where we got to is in the time that was available, <clears throat> is that a risk that the purchaser is prepared to take? In that case, they were. And it worked out just fine. But, you know, there's certainly gaps, but getting advice about those gaps is really important. 
So, David, I'm assuming that you know some transactions are easier than others, and um, every now and again things aren't really you know as smooth as you would hope they they are. And so, from an employment perspective, you know, what are the what are the sources of these complications which arise that you see? Yeah, good question, Scott. Look, whenever something arises uh, in a deal, you know, a complication, there's always a way through. You know, there's always an ability to navigate it. Now, whether that path through is acceptable to both parties is another question. But you know, there's no there's no issue that can come up that can't be considered and worked through. Um, but where I see um, clients and parties to these deals becoming frustrated and perhaps having to go backwards in a transaction is where unrealistic timeframes have been imposed. You know, for example, when the deal needs to be done <clears throat> by Friday. Okay, great. You know, all, all your advisors can prepare the documents and do all of this. Um, but if you want to retain employees, you know, it's an asset sale. Employees need to be employed by Newco. You actually have to terminate their old employment and employ them at Newco. And that means actually engaging with individuals. Um, for example, a workforce, there's going to be people on leave, there's going to be people on workers' compensation. Um, if people aren't away that week, but you need them to be at work on Monday for the new business, you know, realistically, how are you actually going to manage that? And um, if that hasn't been thought about when timeframes are being set, it can be really frustrating for, for all parties. Um, so where I see yeah, parties becoming frustrated and, and potentially deals coming unstuck is where commitments are made with respect to timing that don't actually allow everything to be done that that needs to be done from an employment law perspective so i say i guess then there's going to be you know particularly in these fast-paced distressed deals a real fine line between getting getting the deal done in a time frame where the business you know the vendors can still keep the business afloat i, I guess to get it through to the end of the sale process and having enough time to actually you know do the deal properly um, from an employment perspective. Absolutely, Scott. And, and I think the best way to avoid problems in that space comes back to that point about where are you getting the data? Um, get that data about the employment law issues early. Get some advice about what the um, realistic timeframes are going to be, where there is going to be um, actions that, that must be undertaken that can't be done immediately perhaps because you have to engage with other parties or employees, identify that really early, feed it into your timeframes so there aren't nasty surprises. Yeah. And, you know, the sale of a business, particularly from an employee's perspective, and, and one in a situation where the business may not have been going that well, it's, it's a big thing for the employees. And so just, just from a communications perspective in terms of, you know, telling them about it, what should the buyer and the vendor be, you know, be doing in, in that regard? Yeah, it's so important, Scott, particularly um, for Newco, if they will be taking on some of the workforce. You know, morale um, is really important. You want people to, you know, really hit the ground running with the new entity so it doesn't interrupt operations if that's um, material. Um, if you're not acquiring 
if Newco isn't acquiring employees, then it's less of a concern for Newco, but certainly a concern for Oldco, who needs to deal with employee liabilities um, and, and likely uh, or often industrial issues. Um, at the same time, it is a, is it a business deal? And you know, employees sometimes have rights under industrial instruments to be consulted about these types of things. Sometimes they don't, and you don't need to overshare or create angst amongst a workforce that might turn out to be unnecessary. Um, so you don't want to jump the gun about what might occur, but you really should be thinking about what is the best way to communicate to employees, come up with a strategy um, that's flexible. You might need to change it as you go, but really speaking to employees um, about this is a transaction that's coming. If people will be transferring, give them some information, make it clear at a very early stage um, there will be no diminution in your terms and conditions of employment. Um, all of your prior service and accrued long service leave and annual leave will go across to the new business. You know, if that's going to happen, tell your people and it will put their minds at ease and make the whole thing a lot easier. Just just yeah. jump just jumping in, just, just sort of picking up on that from probably from a transactional sort of um, lawyer's kind of perspective, you know, it, I agree with all that's been said, and and I think it's it, it's really interesting when you think about that communication piece, you know, with employees in different sort of deals, sort of scenarios. So so obviously in a, in a in a non-distress situation, just as a point of sort of contrast, you know, you want good three-way discussions between the you know the seller, the buyer, and the employee, and and a structured process, enough time, give people time to look at an offer, take it home, you know, speak to their family, come back. You know, sort of on the Monday, and and sort of, you know, and and um and hopefully hopefully sign up. In a, in a distressed scenario, you know, it, it it's different. So if it's an administrator, an administrator might be, um, you know, managing you know employees, you know, expectations and morale through a very stressful, you know, period, and that may be on top of a, a, a difficult period for the business prior to the appointment, uh, and then uh, and dealing with multiple. You know, sort of bidders on a, you know, on on a, on a sale where there's no real certainty, you know, whether a deal will go through at all and who it will go through with and when, right? So, you, you know, that that a skillful administrator will manage, um, you know, the employee um, communications sort of in that, you know, in that scenario. Um, you know, we had a different scenario recently where we acquired, you know, a, a um, assets from from a, from a liquidator, and the biggest issue there was that, you know, the business had been um, was sort of, was basically being sort of broken up. People were, were leaving and going to competitors. There was a, a piece of the business which uh, which we liked, um, which we wanted to acquire with the, with the people, uh, and it was a discrete team. Uh, and the trick there was really making sure that the communication, you know, with the employees was such that um, they understood, you know, that there was an opportunity there for ongoing employment and for the team to stay together. Uh, and that there was a really credible buyer there, ready to you know, ready to go and give them a new chance. And um, because what you don't want is to be halfway through a process like this, and then you lose the people because the business is nothing without the people. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good point. Um, well, thank you very much, Ed and David, for for your expert comments today. I guess from my perspective, you know, summing up, the distressed sales, they're different to ordinary sales. Um, there are shorter timeframes. 
buyers need to be ready to act at short notice. They need to expect not to have perfect information and they need to price the risk that comes with not having perfect information. And at the same time, they need to place sufficient importance um, around uh, the acquisition of employees and not leave that as an afterthought. Well, thanks everyone for listening today. As always, please get in touch with us if you have any questions. You can find our details on our website, which is hallandwilcox.com.au or connect with us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then rate, review or follow our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Mm-hmm.